all right. Well, we are one minute past the hour. Uh, thanks for joining everybody. It's good to see you again. I do have a list of items I want to remind everybody about because it has been half a year since we've done the Bible study, just to refresh everybody about the format and about how this will operate. If you did it, if you participated last time, it's going to be largely the same. Maybe we'll make some tweaks as we go as needed, just like last time. But if you're new to the study, or perhaps you forgot since last time, uh, these will be one hour study sessions. Just like before, we're going to aim for about 30 to 40 minutes of lecture time. That'll be Robert's uh, leading the discussion and explaining the week's content. And then for about 20 to 30 minutes to close, we'll have questions and or discussion. And uh, we'll end at that hour period out of respect for everyone's time. So if we can't get to your question or your discussion point this week, of course, you're welcome to come back next. And uh, we're, we're a pretty small, tight-knit group. So I guarantee if you hang around, you're going to have plenty of discussion time, uh, even if this particular week doesn't work out or any particular week in the future. Um, when we approach the discussion segment, Robert and I will announce that we're opening up for questions. At that point, please just post the word question in the chat and you are free to chat among yourselves uh, as the discussion goes on too. Uh, so go ahead and utilize that function. When, when it's question time, no need to write the question out. Just write the word question. I'll prompt you to join the discussion uh, when we're ready and we'll just go on a first come first serve basis. Uh, as a reminder for people who want to listen to the show or participate, if you can't participate live, the show is available on podcast audio when we're done, so you can listen at your convenience. Robert also posts a written summary of each week's study on the Bible study page on my website. And lastly, if you'd like to contact Robert about the study, you can do that oh, through the uh, Bible study page uh, of the website. You can contact me through the contact page of the website, too, if you have any Bible study concern. That is, of course, uh, welcome as well. So, Robert, thanks for being patient, uh, patient with my laundry list of items there. But uh, without further ado, take it away. Okay. Well, I also kind of have a long intro, so let me go ahead and say today will be a little bit unusual. Generally, we have kind of a set agenda. We start by reading whatever verses we're going to study. Then I cover the main points, like Matt said, and then we get to the discussion or questions or whatever. Today is going to be kind of a long introduction. So if this is your first time participating in the Bible study, don't let tonight be like the one night that, you know, I don't know, attend at least one other time. So you see how this really goes. Um, well, so let me give you a quick introduction to to myself and the study if you're new and then i will start talking about what we will be discussing this season um i'm, I'm kind of calling this season two of the bible study not because this is really a show but it makes it simple to to discuss you know when we study john and now that we are going to study a little bit of genesis and then acts um but like I said, this is really not not a show or a true podcast in the sense that really what matters are the people who are here and participating and all that, and anybody who wants to listen to afterwards, well, awesome. Um, so let me, in case you're new, and I will make this very, very brief, let me tell you a little bit about who I am and what I hope to do. Uh, I'm just a guy. I'm just a fan of Madame Blonde's show. I've been listening to them for a long, long time. Uh, so... Uh, you know, somehow I got this gig. Uh, professionally, I am an accountant and an attorney. I also have a math degree. I just share that so you kind of know how I think and and perhaps, you know, the words that I use and all that will come from that background. 
Um, I went from being the typical edgy, outspoken atheist to a committed Christian about 20 years ago. And I've spent a lot of time studying the Bible, theology, church history, all of that stuff. And I hope, I don't always accomplish this, but I hope to think as rigorous as rigorously about faith as I do about everything else in my life. Well, um, what I hope to do in the Bible study, I hope that what I present is scholarship-based. What I mean by that is I do read, you know, scholars, the, you know, professors and in, in, in PhDs and all that, and I even check their citations. You know, as a lawyer, you always do that. Um, and, and so I hope that what I share with you guys is solid scholarship. Now, I'm sure I will get some things wrong, but luckily there are very clever people who participate in this study and they can correct me when I make a mistake. And they've done that many times and I always appreciate it. So, and I mean that, um, I try to keep the study non-denominational. Now, of course, that's kind of impossible. The longer than the longer that you go. But that is my attempt. If there are multiple interpretations of them, of something, I try to present at least the main interpretations and then people can make up their own minds. Now, of course, the longer that we go, the longer that you will see my theological leanings. It, like I said, it's unavoidable. I do what I can. And this should go without saying, but I'd rather just say it. it I do approach this from the standpoint of a Christian. I believe that the Bible is inspired, that it is reliable. And so I present the text of the Bible like it is true. If you're a skeptic, you're still very much welcome here. And you are more than welcome to insert the word allegedly before any claim that the Bible makes. Um, but I won't stop to make that, to, you know, to make that that kind of disclaimer every time and you're also of course feel free to push back however much you want to um like matt said i teach for about the first 40 minutes then we open it up for questions that's normally how it goes the only as far as i know and of course this is really matt's thing um like his website and all that so but as far as i know the only real restriction is you know be respectful of time you know just follow your turn and then respect everyone's time. Other than that, I don't care, you know, how, what you want to say or how, how much you want to push back or whatever. And final introductory note is about Bible translations. I use the NET Bible. That's the new English translation. This is a fairly new translation. It was published in 2005 and it was meant to be a free Bible for the internet age. Hence net you know, they were so clever. The Bible was going to be on the net. Okay, whatever. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, and I've done some research on this, this Bible does not have some kind of leaning, like uh, more Reformed or Catholic or what have you. Uh, but you feel free to use whatever Bible you like. Uh, it's just I'm just kind of giving you fair warning that I will be reading from the NET. Um, if I can make a suggestion, I would say, Maybe don't use a paraphrase like the message or Bibles that have been slightly modified like the Passion. Um, but other than that, just pick a Bible you can understand. And uh, like I said, the text in your Bible maybe won't match mine unless you also use the NET. Okay, with those, with all those things out of the way, I want to describe what I hope to accomplish. The first two or three weeks at most, and then what we will do after that. So 
when the first season of, of this Bible study ended, we asked people, hey, what do you want to study next? And really there were two suggestions. It was Exodus or Acts. And several people emailed me or messaged me, whatever. I would say that the votes were about the same. And so it really kind of came down to what I wanted to do because it really was 50-50. And I, I thought about that and I thought, well, Acts comes right after John chronologically, meaning like events-wise in the Bible, it comes right after. Uh, I suppose it also comes right after in the actual Bible. But uh, <laughs> uh, so it makes sense as a season two to go into Acts. But the other reason, and this is going to show kind of my own my own faults, my own weaknesses, is of course Acts was written in Greek, and it is set in the more familiar Greco-Roman world. Exodus was written in Hebrew, and the the events in Exodus take place in the much more foreign ancient Near East. And I say much more foreign because really we are fairly familiar with, you know, with uh, essentially the Romans, right? We've, we've watched movies and all that, and those, they're not always true to life, but they're fairly close. That is not the case with the ancient Near East, so that takes a lot more research. And so I kind of took the easier path in that regard, but I also felt like it made the most sense. Now, that, that you know, gets us to the question of why then are we not studying Acts right off the bat? And there's really kind of two main reasons that I want to go into Genesis. And before I even say this, I want to give a kind of a, a disclaimer. Covering Genesis is always controversial, particularly the early chapters, and that's what we will discuss briefly. And so I know I'm going to ruffle feathers. I just want you to know I don't, I'm not trying to do that, and I will try to be as respectful as I can. You guys know if you've been part of the study that I really try to do that. Um, so if, if I make you super upset, just, you know, skip like two sessions of the Bible study and come back and we will do acts and I'm sure that it will be all water under the bridge. Okay. But why do I even want to take the risk of ruffling all these feathers? Well, first, because I think that the interpretation of early Genesis is one of the biggest objections to Christianity as a whole. You know, if if uh, you've ever been on the internet, I'm sure that you've come across <laughs> objections like, oh, to be a Christian means that you have to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. You have to disregard modern science and astrophysics and linguistics and history and, you know, geology, pretty much, you know, not just science, but like I said, other disciplines like linguistics. Um, and so they make um they make or that claim anyways ma makes christianity seem seem kind of crazy now the other reason <laughs> i want to that, that i would say that's actually the quote unquote the smaller reason the less important reason the bigger reason that i want to talk about the early chapters of genesis is because i want to start building a christian worldview by by building i mean i want to start discussing a christian worldview i think this will be a long ways, this will go a long ways into addressing some of the things that people talk about on the Wednesday night call-in shows and some, some of the comments that Matt has made on his show and all that. Now, I'm not saying that this will address all of those comments by any means, but, but it's probably the place to start. So 
how are we going to do this? This is really, again, this we're going to study Acts. That's going to be our focus. This is just like a small, small detour. So how in the world can we discuss the first few chapters of Genesis in two or three weeks? Well, um, really, this is going to be more of like a primer where I want to do, th th this is kind of my goal. I want to present a non-literal interpretation of the first few chapters of Genesis. And again, I know that that is controversial and, and, and you feel free to push back all you want. By you, I mean anybody who's listening to this, who's participating. Um, and, and, and if it completely upsets you, come back in two weeks and we will be good friends again. Um, again, that's, that's not my intent uh, to upset anybody. But so I do want to offer that interpretation. And then really what I want to ask is when we read the first three chapters of Genesis, what do we learn about God? Do we, do, what do we learn about creation, meaning the world around us? What do we learn about man? And what do we learn about sin and the fall? Because, in, and I will say this ahead of time, maybe to bring down the temperature, I feel like however you read Genesis, literally or otherwise, those conclusions are effectively the same. So we really don't have to agree on how we get there. But um, that's, that's what I would like to really get out of the next two, uh, maybe three weeks. Now, um, at this point in my notes, and I did this without asking Matt, so I don't even know if this will be acceptable. <laughs> but uh, I just know kind of how, how this topic goes and people have strong opinions. Um, Matt, are you okay if I open it up for, for a quick round of questions or comments before we actually get into the material? Yeah, man, you're the study leader. Uh, if people do have questions or comments about just structure or broad level topics like that, I'll go ahead and take them. Um, just write question in the chat and I'll be happy to let you chime in. But uh, unless we see some pop up soon here, I think we could probably just continue on and maybe if there's a natural break if someone wants to chime in we'll do it that way because at least as of right now i'm not seeing tremendous eagerness to join in just yet so i'm guessing we could well uh garrick has a comment you want to take one from garrick sure garrick go ahead garrick or do i have to unmute him i forget how i don't even remember how to produce this particular <laughs> production i can now garrick's not even in my roster list well you know this is going about as well as uh maybe a a wednesday attempt at you know managing discord <laughs> yeah uh okay well can you guys hear me now uh yeah yep. go ahead there we go how's it going everybody um i hate to do this but i'm gonna plug another podcast to that kind of addresses this in one particular episode um, so Young Heretics did an episode on the 12th of this month called The Day With No Yesterday, in which he takes an approach at kind of explaining the first chapter of Genesis through um, modern scientific interpretations of quantum theory and quantum mechanics, and it mirrors it very well. And the end conclusion kind of is that we were... On this idea early on, we just didn't have a scientific materialist language to explain it. So the Bible was kind of our only reference point. 
Um, it's a really good listen. Uh, some of it does go over my head. I don't consider myself particularly intelligent, but even I could understand that uh, it's a really good listen. All right. Well, thank you for the recommendation. Um, Robert, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that sounds, um, that sounds fine. And, and what, what I will do, like I said, this is, this will be a very short kind of dip into Genesis. And so I'm going to present this, this non-literal view. I, I'm not really trying to convince anyone and you should absolutely go listen to other people and see what they say and all that. Um, so yeah, that seems, that seems absolutely fine. People should go listen to these, um, to this other views. All right, that's uh, that's all, all the requests I have to speak. So if you're ready to hop into the substance, let's get at it. Yep, let's do it. Okay, so I this is going to be kind of weird because I will spend probably much of the remaining time talking about literary concepts that they, they don't apply explicitly to Genesis. Uh, eventually, we will kind of zone in on that, but it, they really are important. If nothing else, take this and then apply it to reading poetry or whatever. Okay, here's my first question. And, and I'm addressing these objections first because, again, I hope to bring down the temperature. Let's say that somebody says, hey, you, you should read Genesis literally. In, sorry, one more disclaimer. When I say Genesis, I just mean the early chapters up to the first 11 chapters. Everyone agrees that after that, it is history. I mean, whether you believe the text or not, but the text is meant to be historical after chapter 11. So I keep saying Genesis, like I'm referring to the entire book, that I'm just using that as shorthand. That is not the case. I'm referring only to the early chapters, like I said, up to the first 11 chapters. Okay. So let's say that somebody were to say, hey, you need to read Genesis literally because that is the more conservative approach to reading the text. And I think that that, that is a, a thought that many people have. And let's begin by, by, by defining our terms. What do we mean by conservative whenever we do anything, really? The, the term conservative depends on the context, you know, what meaning it will take. It could mean, of course, in the political spectrum, it would be the position held by somebody right of center. Okay, we get that. Now, another context, let's, let's say in scholarship or history, normally conservative will mean the position that has been held traditionally. So like when you look back at history, this is what most people have believed, or it could be the position held by most scholars, right? So the conservative position on, I don't know if I want to give this example, the conservative position on vaccines technically is that they totally work and have no side effects because that's the... <laughs> We're trying not to get shut down here. Careful. <laughs> yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. Just got demonetized. Of course, we're not monetized. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So now I think that when we're reading a text, we don't actually mean the word conservative in either of those terms or in either of, of those senses, but in the sense that we are trying to avoid risk. And what is the risk here? It is the risk of misreading or misinterpreting the text. So is a literal reading of a text, not just Genesis, I haven't even made it there. Is it really the more conservative way to read a text? Well, I would like to argue that the answer is actually no, that there's nothing really more safe, more conservative in that regard um, by just 
immediately adopting a literal reading of a text. And I will do this with an example, a rather silly one, but I, I hope it makes sense to everybody. Consider the well-known expression, I love you to the moon and back, right? It Apparently this, this started in 1979, but it became popular in the 90s and 2000s. There, there's even a, a kid's book by that name at this point. And let's say that we are committed to this, you know, to this like epistemology, essentially, where we're just going to take the text literally. Well, fine. So let's say I take the expression, I love you to the moon and back, literally. Well, there's really two ways to do that, at least that I could think of. One would be that I will love you during a trip to the moon and back. Like that's, that's the time when I'm going to love you. And now, although not logically entailed in this statement, one could draw the negative implication that that means I won't love you before our trip to the moon or after we return to earth. Okay. The other way that, that we could take the statement literally, the more plausible way is to say, well, what this statement is saying is that love can be measured similarly to distance. And at first glance, you're like, yep, that makes sense of the text, right? Because the distance from the moon and back to earth is very large. So what the statement is saying that my love for you can be measured and is very large. Well, but then I would say clearly you've never been in the midst of a bunch of theologians who will then just think statements to death because what would be the next step in that thinking? Well, really, when you think about it, the distance to the moon and back is quite small compared to the distance to the sun and back or to the end of the solar system or to the end of the universe. So really when I say that I love you to the moon and back, I'm saying I love you very little. In fact, an infinitesimal amount compared to the amount that I could love you. So notice that, and again, I know this is silly, but an attempt to take a text literally when it's not meant that way can actually lead you to conclude the exact opposite of what the text means. Now, I'm not saying like if, if if you've done this with Genesis, that like if you take Genesis literally, then then you've come to the exact opposite conclusion. Again, don't don't get ahead of me because I don't mean this as any sort of insult. I'm just trying to establish some some you know kind of some basic concepts that I think should be fairly unobjectionable. Okay, let's take the next potential challenge that I think somebody would make which is to say that if you take Genesis non-literally, then the text essentially doesn't mean anything. And this makes sense at a glance. It, the claim would be that when a text is figurative in some way, then because it is subject to so many interpretations, you can't be sure of any one of them. So the text might have a meaning, but you really can't determine it. So it might as well not have a meaning at all. Now, Again, I think that this is a claim that is quite clearly false if you think about it. Let's take my prior example. I love you to the moon and back. It's quite clear what that means. Um, and in fact, let's take another non-literal statement. Let's say that I told somebody, my love for you is like a flame that has gone out. Neither statement is quote-unquote literal, but obviously their semantic ranges are opposite, right? There's no overlap between them. So... No, just because a text is non-literal, it certainly does not mean that it does not have a meaning. Uh, an example that came to mind when I was thinking about this 
is the the poem the poem the road not taken by robert frost you know this is one of the most famous english poems it was written in 1915 and ironically it's also one of the most misinterpreted poems um, in the english language i i find this really really fascinating like if i'm not going to ask of course people to do this but if you were to close your eyes and and try to picture this poem i bet that the title that came to your mind was not the road not taken i bet it was the path less traveled or something to that effect right and if i were to ask you hey what does that poem mean you would remember the last few lines about you know i i took the path less traveled and it made all the difference and your conclusion would be something like well when you take the harder path it is more rewarding something along those lines right okay and this is a very short poem, so again, bear with me. I promise I'm, I'm getting to Genesis. Um, let's, let's read this poem rather quickly and see if that's what it means. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. Now, first of all, notice the titles, The Road Not Taken, and notice what has happened just in the second line. What is his problem? He's sorry that he cannot take both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, and by that he means he's, he looks at the other, he took it in, as just as fair. The second path looks the same as the first. And having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. So if anything, that second one looked a little bit better, better the leaves were not crushed. Though as far, sorry, though as for the passing there, had warned them really about the same. But again, he says, even if one looks kind of sort of better, really when you think about it, both, both paths are the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how, sorry, how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. So he said, oh, I can only take one path, but one day I'll take the other. I'll come back and take the other. But in the back of his mind, he knows that's not going to happen. Life takes you other places. And then you never get the chance to return. And then the last stanza. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less travel by. And that has made all the difference. Notice, the last stanza is not the truth, it's what he will tell himself and other people, right? So, the, the, the whole point of this poem is the traveler feels enormous kind of anxiety and sadness that life has all these paths, but he has to pick only one. And life is short, so he knows he won't have the chance to take the other paths. And how will he cope with this difficulty of life? He will tell himself, not being true, and he's aware it's not true. He will tell himself, oh yeah, I made the right choice. I took the pathless travel and somehow that was heroic or something. Right? So, and you may be thinking, why in the world are we reading this, Robert? Well, because here's the one point I'm trying to establish. Poetry is non-literal, right? It's trying to make a point but in a figurative way. And yet, poetry can clearly have a point, 
And by that, in, in that entails the idea that one could interpret it wrong, right? If, if there is a true interpretation, if there's a correct interpretation, that means there are wrong interpretations. So just because we take something non-literally, it does not mean that the semantic range of the, of the text now is infinite, that it has no meaning. That is not the case. And I hope um, that poem illustrated the point. Uh, if nothing else, now you can walk away with a better understanding of Robert Frost. Uh, <laughs> I was not an English major, major or anything, so probably shouldn't be teaching poetry, but I do enjoy it. Um, okay, so kind of the last point that I want to make today is, can we say that a literal interpretation of Genesis is conservative in other ways, not in the way that it minimizes risk, but in the sense that in the other, the other potential denotations of that word, like this has been the historic interpretation of the church. And so a deviation from it is almost automatically heterodox, uh, meaning not, you know, within proper doctrine. Well, I, I think that that also is not the case. And, and I will, I will try to make my point with one example, and it's a, it's a really big example. It's one that for anybody, it should be hard to dismiss, and that will be Augustine. So the, the, I guess let me rephrase my question. The question is, has the church always taken the early chapters of Genesis literally? Is, is, that, is that kind of something that everyone did? And it's only in modern times, because we so want to fit science with the text of Genesis, that we've decided, no, you know, we better reinterpret this text and even water it down some, because otherwise we're going to look like fools. And again, I'm, I'm going to provide one example to hopefully give you some evidence that that is really not the case. So... I've mentioned Augustine before, I think, maybe in such and one, but if you don't know who he is, he is probably the biggest kind of theologian in church history. And by biggest, I mean with the most influence. I'm not saying he's necessarily the most brilliant or who wrote the most stuff or whatever, although he certainly wrote a bunch and was brilliant. But I'm not trying to rank him in that sense. What I'm trying to say is he certainly is the most influential uh theologian in at least the Western church. Uh, short of Jesus and Paul, no other person has had an influence in the West like Augustine. And even if you're not a Christian, you may not notice kind of what, how he has affected your life, but, but he has been uh, so influential just in the West in, in many, many ways. Um, he lived in the late 300s and early 400s. So, mind you, this is centuries before the advent of modern science. So you really can't say he decided to interpret the text a certain way because he was trying to fit science into it. In fact, he's considered in some tradition in some traditions to be the patron paint of sorry, the patron, the patron saint. Oh my goodness, the patron saint of theologians. Okay. Now he studied Genesis Genesis extensively and in fact wrote five commentaries on it so this was not some kind of passing thought that he had um, on, on it well what was the conclusion that he came to augustine thought that or concluded 
that God had created the universe in an instant. Therefore, the account of the days in Genesis was not literal, and in fact could not be literal. He thought that the days in Genesis were a way of accommodating the act of creation into a human work week so that people could better understand how creation happened. Now, I am not saying that this is my view. I'm not, I'm not attacking the view or supporting the view. I'm just trying to show you that one of the most brilliant theologians in church history in the year, you know, 400 essentially, was thinking about this. Now, why would somebody at that time even consider the possibility that the text was not literal? He, he had three main reasons. These were not all of his reasons, but I think it gives you some sense of his thinking. First, um, light in the text appears in day one, but the luminaries, meaning the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're not created until day four. Now, if you take the text literally, what, what might be called a young earth creationist, I know that you have a response for this. You posit a different source of light. I'm not saying that this is like a slam dunk of any kind, but it's, it's, it's weird that an author, if he really means it literally, would leave this at least apparent contradiction within the same page. Uh, so it clued Augustine and that hmm, maybe the author didn't mean this literally. That's why he didn't care about this, you know, potential discrepancy. Second, there seems to be a chronology between chapters uh, one and two when it comes to vegetation. Vegetation is created early on in chapter one, and then we get to chapter two, and there's still no vegetation. Again, I know that there are comebacks for this if you support the literal interpretation. But again, it seems like an author who's trying to, to write historiography would probably not leave this possible, um, you know, kind of hiccups in the text. And finally, uh, for Augustine, the idea that God rested on the seventh day also pointed to a non-literal interpretation because God cannot grow weary, therefore God cannot rest. So surely, is his argument, this is a non-literal description of God, you know, of how God acted, because God would not rest. Um, now, just in case, you're thinking, Robert, you are totally cherry-picking all this stuff. Okay, so you found one counterexample, but that, that doesn't represent the church tradition. Well, I think, it, and like I said, participants in the study are brilliant, so maybe you've read all this stuff. But if you haven't, you might be surprised to find that not only Augustine, but Clement, Origen, Didymus, Athanasius, these are all church fathers, um, they all took the early chapters of Genesis to not be literal to some extent or another. And I do want to make that important caveat. Um, like they, some of them took it to be more literal than others. Like some thought that Genesis was pretty much literal, but the days referred to long periods of time. But other than that, it was pretty much how history went. Others took it kind of like Augustine, even more figuratively. Um, but the point that I'm making is really quite simple. It is that if, if, you know, if somebody were to say, well, a literal understanding of Genesis is the position the church has always held, and to deviate from that is to break away from church tradition. I th forgive me to put it so strongly, but I think that that is 
that that is simply false. Um, now, if you're if the claim was a little different and it was that's what most Christians have believed throughout history, that's probably true. I mean, I don't know that we have stats on that, but I would grant that point. That is probably true. Um, but when we look at um, the church fathers and big theologians and whatnot, then the claim would not be true. Um, and the the last point there that I was making, which I mentioned earlier, is that notice that all of these guys that are quoted, they are from, you know, very early on in, in the history of the church, way before science. So they did not take a non-literal interpretation because of the pressure that science put upon them or culture put upon them. It's because they found clues in the text itself. So what I will try to do next time, and after this, we'll open it up for questions and, and comments. Um, what I will try to do next time is to kind of show you those, those what I consider to be clues in the text, that the text itself tells us that it's not meant to be taken literally. And then after that, we will just get to the lessons that we can learn from these three chapters. We will probably read all three of them next week. And that's really what I want to focus on, that, that Christian worldview. And hopefully this, the, the discussion today and next week will be profitable to you. And if it's not, just disregard it. We'll get into Acts. And again, this will be water under the bridge. So, Matt, do you have any questions, comments, anything you want to say? Um, I do. First, I'll open the, the discussion here. If you guys would like to participate, if you have a question or a point for the discussion, just write the word question in the chat there, and I will prompt you in the order we receive those requests, and we'll uh, be happy to take your point. Um, you talked about ruffling feathers and how this was going to be controversial, and I feel like my feathers are, are already ruffled a little bit as a non- scriptural scholar which is the whole point of me being here and i try not to get too for people who may have not participated last time around i don't aim for this to be you know current events politics that kind of stuff that you would typically see me talking about but my mind is always going to work that way so when i hear like i hear this stuff and, and the word penumbras comes into my mind because i'm thinking oh no now, now we're going to get into metaphor and poetry and it's going to be flowery interpretations of choose your own adventure and find whatever you want. Now, I'm you discussed, I think, some limitations to that. It is not it's it's sort of uh, the reasonable man's metaphor or something like that. I gather where we're going. Um, so I'm not going to I gather that you had an explanation for that and we're going to go through some explanations for that as we go through Genesis here. So I'm not going to ask you to go down that fully, but you did mention that chapter 11 uh, in Genesis, it sort of turns from what you're characterizing as essentially a piece of poetry or some kind of metaphor mm -hmm. into a, a more literal history. Mm -hmm. What is, what is that change? How, how is that defined? So the the way the text is written, this will be a little bit hard to describe, but let me give you an example, and then I will do my best that I can to describe that. You know, when we read, for example, the Psalms in the Bible, you, you read them, and from the syntax of the text, the fact that they're not written in prose, to how, you know, to the flowery language, we can tell that the Psalms are songs or poems, you know, they're, mm. really they're, they're songs, but whatever. And then... Whenever you read a text, like whenever you read the Gospel of John, you immediately pick up that this is history, right? And when I say it's history, 
like you can disbelieve it, but at least the author intends it as history, right? So the, I think that it's actually quite intuitive for us to read a text and know what kind of literature we are reading. And it's hard to kind of put our finger on it, but we just know it. Now, the, that's, that's kind of my simple example. But the, really, the, like I said, I, I think that there are, that it's obvious from, from the text, to be honest, that you're not reading um, kind of technical history, that you're reading what we would call, and I'm going to use this term, it's really going to get me thrown under the bus. But I would say the first 11 chapters, this is what scholars use, don't hold your stones before you throw them at me, is, is what's called mytho-history. And by that, <laughs> again, let me explain. I need a fired <laughs> button on this desk, you're fired. No, I'm just yeah. Carry it. What I mean by that is that it really is history. Like if you ask me, are the early chapters of Genesis true? Yes, I believe that 100%. And it, actually, if you ask me, are they history in the sense that do they describe things that really happened? I would also say yes, 100%. The only contention is that they describe events in a metaphorical way. So they describe it in the form, in the style of myth but when i say myth again i do not mean that word like when we say oh that's just a myth like that's false no like put it in a list with poetry and historiography and biography myth like myth is a style of writing it is a genre not you know and in in the in those chapters of genesis you do see most if not all of the markers of ancient mythology in the, again, I mean, mythology is a style of writing, like poetry, not that it is false. Um, like you see, for example, you see those, these chronologies, you see that the fact that not all the events tie up chronologically super tight. Uh, I will talk about this more next week, by the way, but um, you see, the depiction of God, for example, is is very anthropomorphic um, and a number of things like that. I will talk more about that next week. Um, does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, it does. And I uh, I know the way you think and I, I know like, even though I am sort of the, the themes tonight, I'm a little bit surprised by, to be honest. But I, I know I think I know where you're going. And so. I'm not I'm not off the bandwagon yet. I'm just I'm I'm entering waters that make me uncomfortable anytime it's like well, as I've already stated, I don't need to waste you know question time for for other people, but uh well, I'm so nervous, that's all. But I'm still here and I'm still going to listen. If anybody's feeling the same way, yeah. come back at least one more week and then you can stone me. Yeah, okay. all right. But just like give me a chance. Well, okay. yeah, all right. We'll we'll keep it very biblical in that sense then. Okay. Um Let's see. First up to ask a question, I think it's Gilgamesh. So Gilgamesh, if you're ready to chime in, go ahead. Yeah, it's just calm down, Matt. I get where Robert's going with this. I do. I understand what he's trying to get at. It's like the idea of mythology and legend, you know, that whole thing. Like when you look at, you know, something, it's like it's it's a legend or a myth, but once it's proven true then it becomes history. So it's kind of like when you look at like the kind of going off a little bit, like the seven deadly sins and the virtues, you know, those two things, you know, most people go, you know, what are the seven deadly sins? 
but you know, it's like how hard, it, how easy is it to fall into the seven deals? It, it's really easy to fall in. It's hard to get out of it. It's kind of, I'll give you a good example, like Star Wars with the Jedi and the Sith. The Jedi represent like Christianity, while the Jedi, while the Sith <laughs> yeah. represent the sins, yeah. like given into pleasures, you know, let, let the wrath and all that enjoy those things that you should, as far as it, like a Christian, resist. And it's easy to fall into sin. It's hard to get out because most people can't recognize they've sinned. And so their pride won't let them admit that they've sinned. And so they don't see it. And it's really, you know, it's one of those things like when they say, oh, go to a, pr a priest can't absolve you of sin, only God can. So that's why you've got to, you know, you pray to God to ask him for absolution because a priest goes, oh, do 10 Hail Marys and he, nope, you're going to carry that stuff till you can talk to God. And, um, but yeah, it's, you know, something I've been, you know, it's kind of like what the whole thing with Genesis, like everything has a beginning. It's like man, you know, Adam and Eve started it by disobeying God. Listen, when she listened to Lucy, Satan and said, yeah, eat from the tree of knowledge. And what happened? They ate from it. God cast them out. The original sin we all carry is disobedience. And then you have pride, which all sin comes from pride. It's like the mother of all sin. And it's like people can fall into it. It's hard to get out of it. That's like when you look at Yoda says, no Jedi who's ever fallen the dark side has ever come back from the dark side. So when Anakin fell the dark side, they were like, forget him, forget him. And Luke's like, I can save him. And then he showed, yes, you can. And like, you know, like Obi, Luke also, I mean, Obi-Wan fell into it when he killed, when he cut uh, Darth Maul in half after killing Qui-Gon Jinn. But then he pulled I himself remember, back yes. from that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He pulled him back from that and he was able to not fall you know, into the dark side. So yeah. you can let anger, but it's that whole idea of pulling yourself back from it. And that's what Luke sees in his father is that struggle that all right. we all have with, you know, sin and everything. And so a lot of people don't see, you know, oh, they personally have our sinning. And then they're, you know, because it's, you know, you can look at like, what is greed? Greed is avarice. And you can give it a bunch of different names for it. And it falls along with with gluttony, like gluttony and greed go really hand in hand. And then you add the other sins like lust, envy, you know, wrath, right. you know, pride. Yeah. Well, th thank you for the thoughts. Uh, uh -huh. Robert, uh, you think the Star Wars uh, metaphor, Star Wars comparison is that uh, on point? Uh, you guys know that I'm not. OK, my movie takes Matt, I think would make your movie takes. Be you have popular. even fewer references, huh? <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> Okay, well, okay. I, I, it, that sounds consistent with my understanding of Star Wars uh, events. So, well, there's also George Lucas has talked about this yeah. about the Jedi and the Sith and everything, and Garrett Edwards yeah. talked about the same thing. And it's like, yeah, it's basically the Jedi of the Christians and the Sith who are dark Jedi, fallen Jedi, are they fell into sin? Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Well, th thank okay. you for the uh, uh -huh. thank you for the thoughts, and of course, good to oh, see yeah. you again. Thanks for coming by. Oh yeah. Uh, have a good night. Yeah, have a good night. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thank you, Greg. I will uh, blame Matt for all this, all the problems. If he, we'll stone him. We're not stone you. It's not no, your fault. I, it's and his. Seriously yeah, spe speaking, yeah. one of the things I appreciate it. Even last season, I would say that there was a, a healthy amount of um, disagreement, pushback on certain points of interpretation. I really appreciate everybody's participation uh, and advocating for their views or their position in a way that last season I certainly thought was uh, very healthy and very respectful. So. 
Um, it is not my intent to be disrespectful. Uh, it's just, I work, I just, whenever it's like, it's okay, man. Whenever Calm it's, down. it's poetry and metaphor it's and okay. you can choose your own, uh, you can choose your own adventure in this world. I, you know, I get a little nervous, but I'm willing to, I followed Robert this far. I'm willing to let him yeah. take me a few steps further. Uh, have a good night, Gilgamesh. Appreciate okay, it. Okay. You um, too. Greg, if you're there, go ahead and chime in. All right, uh, Greg, I will try to come back to you here. Uh, Matt and Pat, if you're ready to go, go ahead and unmute yourselves. Poppy, can you hear me? Can you hear yes, sir. Loud and clear. Hello, this is our first uh, Bible study with you guys. Oh, well, thanks for stopping by. Looks promising. Um, typically, when we do our Bible studies, we start off with a little prayer. I guess you guys don't do that. Um, normally what we do is we have a reading of the scripture for the week. Uh, when we get into the, kind of the substance of the, uh, of the actual study. Uh, but I, I can let Robert speak to that. He's the one who's designing the structure here. Yeah. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just throwing it out here. Uh, the only thing about Genesis I would like to start off with is, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, and the serpent, the serpent is, uh, you know, Satan, and uh, the first thing he does is he casts the the element of doubt to Eve, saying that why can't you have the tree of knowledge? Is God afraid of you? Why can't you know everything that God knows? So he introduces the element of doubt, and then from that point on, things got really bad. And it just it follows through today. When you think about it, all sin is is the element of doubt and not believing in God. Hmm. And sort of that lack of humility before God, that that Mm -hmm. there are things, I suppose, God, not I suppose, there are things necessarily that God knows and can do that you can't. And if you fail to recognize your own limitations, you are, uh, you're, you're doomed for some trouble, I think. Are we going to get to that? Uh, Is that uh, all of that stuff part of the the study content coming up? Yeah. So, well, it, it will be a very abbreviated version of all that, okay. um, but we will read chapters one, two, and three. It does include that. And like I said, I think when we get to the conclusions from those three chapters, I think we will all pretty much agree, regardless of how you get there. Uh, not that not that it doesn't matter how you get there, but but I think we will have a really good conclusion to these three weeks. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by, Matt and Pat. We hope to uh, see you throughout the duration of the study. And, oh, yeah. We'll hang in there. Cool. All right. We'll have a good thanks night, for having guys. Me. I have a, a quick question also. Yeah, sure. For Go Robert. for it. I was curious what you thought of Dennis Prager's commentary, the book he wrote on Genesis. He seems to take it from what I've read so far. He seems to take it fairly literally. I have not read his book. I'm, of course, familiar with him. Um so I can't really speak too much uh, to his particular his particular book. Now, um, you know, normally as a Christian, I'm going to look back at the Old Testament and kind of see it through through Christ, through Jesus. I think that the Old Testament speaks of Jesus, and somebody like Dennis Prager would not do that. So I'm sure that we would have disagreements, him and I, um, but I can't say anything specific without reading his book. Okay. Have a good night, guys. And Matt, can I say one more thing yeah, on, on the first comment about uh, prayer? I actually really struggle with that idea because, of course, I've done other Bible studies in the past and would, we would also pray at the beginning. 
I didn't know if that would be appropriate given this forum and because anybody can join and they might not feel comfortable with that. So um, uh, just know that, yeah, we don't do that, but that wasn't because I didn't like care about that. That really was something that we considered. And I thought, ah, maybe, maybe we'll leave that out for now. All right. Uh, Rev Rogers, you're good to go if you're ready. Okay. Um, my backdrop here, I'm in the church so that makes whatever I say authoritative. Is this uh, um, is this one of those Zoom backgrounds? Or it, it does look No, pretty, no, this is actually this the church. This is legit. I, I was going to say, this looks pretty real. So, okay, yeah, good yeah, for you, it, man. It is. I could swing the camera around to show yeah, my yeah. Um Basically, uh, as I see Genesis, you, you should read it in accordance to the kind of literature it is to when it was... Um, communicated to its original audience. Um, and the word myth myth comes from the Greek word mythos, and it can mean plot, narrative, or story in its most simplistic understanding. Now, now in its usage throughout the years, especially here in our culture, when we say myth, people just mean, oh, just a made-up lie. That's not how we should understand myth in terms of scripture, you should really look at it as the plot or story to provide basic theological framework for living in the community. The church, the, the, the Jewish tradition is that the first five books of Genesis were written um, by Moses, I think enhanced over the centuries um, in Israel, but they were kind of a, a narrative instruction for the social community of Israel as they were going into the promised land. And Genesis provides a foundational theological framework for them to live in the land of Canaan. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are written in a kind of heightened prose. They aren't exactly what you call poetry, but they are a, a the prose is kind of different from the way that G Genesis 12 continues. It's almost like um, Genesis 1 through 11 gives broad sorts of uh, theological frameworks for everybody. And then when you get to, to Abraham or Abram in Genesis 12, you get a more narrowed focus and you get details in the communication that is much more grounded, what we would call grounded historically. You get more place names. You get more descriptions of customs on the ground, of things that are done in a, in a community and society, whereas the first 11 chapters have much more broader themes, and they tend to be the same themes that you will find in other ancient Near Eastern literature. If you were to read uh, the Enuma Elish and Gilgamesh and all these other sorts of things that you find in ancient New Near Eastern literature, you would find these similar types of themes that the first 11 chapters of Genesis addresses. And in some ways, some people think that the first chapter of Genesis is a polemic against um, the gods of Egypt. 
Mm-hmm. And thus, the the way that the the creation story is crafted in communicating, there's a subtle kind of hint, wink, wink. Those gods of Egypt that you Hebrew slaves were delivered from, those gods are minor beings. They do not have the true authority that the God of who is the creator of heaven and earth. Um, they, the gods of the sun and the gods of the moon um, and the stars and all the gods of the animals, Genesis 1 communicates, oh, the God of Israel created all those things. Therefore, the Israelite people should no longer hold allegiance to those particular gods because they've been reminded in this foundational myth, narrative, plot for Israel as they're in the promised land, they no longer should follow those sorts of gods. And these first 11 chapters kind of deal with these broad theological, ethical themes, and then you get it more narrowed down in Genesis 12. And I'll stop my sermon there. All right. Uh, Robert, did you have a response to that? Uh, I, I can agree with pretty much everything that he said. So, um, now I'm not, I'm sure that if we go deeper into this, we'd find some disagreements, but I'm, um, yeah, I, that's, that's pretty much what I have been trying to convey. And so let me make only one clarification to what I've said tonight. I'm not saying that the first 11 chapters are poetry. I only use poetry in my presentation because it is a much more familiar non-literal style of writing for us modern people so i was just trying to show if poetry can have a meaning why can't mytho history have a meaning Uh you know even if it's non-literal but yeah no thank you so much for everything that he said all right thanks rev rogers um and i think the last request to speak that i see is from the other matt so the other matt uh go ahead and chime in if you're ready and oh and greg if you're still around uh you can chime in as well i don't mean to exclude you i just didn't know if your mic was ready the other yeah, matt here i'm ready okay oh, oh okay well um you can you can the other man no. can go ahead if you want all right let's okay. go matt then greg matt go let's ahead. yeah hi uh robert um i just heard someone use the terms linguistic uh semantic range syntax um and uh prose all correctly and i feel like i have landed in the right place um just wanted to say i'm happy to be here it's good to put a face to the voice of gilgamesh and i'm very grateful for uh that's one of the the benefits of joining the bible study man you never know who will show up on camera it's it's, yeah apparently not well that's great man thanks for stopping by i appreciate it and uh thanks for the kind words for robert too robert did you uh have any response no just Thank you. That's always nice. Thank you. Did you have anything else to say before we let you go, Matt? No, thanks. Nice seeing you. Yeah, we'll hope to see you uh, next time. Have a good night. Uh, Greg, if you're still there, go for it. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. All right. I wasn't. I'm I'm driving, so I didn't know if you would unmute me. In your state. (laughs) I'm hands free. So hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) So. I, th- I think the you know the second to the last guy who can't remember his name but who spoke on on the meanings of God creating and that that he's he created the sun 
you know, versus the Egyptian sun god and, and stuff. That was awesome stuff. Um, I guess just at a basic level, I can go through a whole lot of things, but I, I would just bring it back to something simple, I guess, and just, I look at it as when I read, read Genesis 1, I think it's a good starting point for somebody who hasn't read the Bible, maybe just say not even get into whether it, if they should read it literal or if it can be poetry or whatever. To me, it's just, just, just read it and take it in and see how it resonates with you. Because it's my feeling that, you know, we have God's word and it says God's word is breathed the people who wrote the scriptures breathe that the Holy spirit breathed it's breathed out by God. So it's like, however it works that the Holy spirit is working through them to write it. But what was his purpose in writing it? So as I read Genesis, it comes to me as somebody putting, laying out, this is how I did it because it's, it's very, you know, it's like in the beginning, God said there was light and there was light. And then it's like there was evening and morning the first day. And then God created this evening and morning the second day. God created this evening and morning the third day. As just a plain reading for me of the scripture, it's like I look, I know evening and morning is a day and he's creating something. And even if, you know, I I guess a question I would have for Robert too is if even if somebody is using poetry or prose can't they also use it in a way because to me it's, isn't it just rhyming in a way can they just use it to ex explain something that's literal but do it in a way you know so i guess you know my recommendation to people is just read it and see how it it comes off does it come off as as literal and and you can get into the study and and so forth and then as a side note, I do believe that there's plenty of scientific evidence to base off of, off of scripture and, and stuff that you don't have to necessarily read, read Genesis as the beginnings and, and look at it in a way of what science says. And I'm not saying that's what you're, you're doing, Robert. I understand what you're, what you're looking at. And I've heard you know, the point of view. So I'll stop there. Yeah, do you have thoughts on that, Robert? Yeah, just a quick thought, which is, I really like what, what Greg said. The, the only reason that I started with this question of whether Genesis is literal or not, it's because I actually want to get to what the first three chapters teach, the, their main points. And, and I think that if we can... If we can just be open to doing exactly what Greg said, to just reading the text and not being so focused on, oh my goodness, how does this match up with, you know, with astrophysics or whatever, we, I think, will be much more prone to hearing the text. You know, what are the points that it is trying to make? And, and so that is absolutely my goal is to say, maybe let's not just be so so set on this must align with science or whatever. And let's just read the text and see what it says and see what it's trying to teach us, because that's really what I'm after. This is really just an obstacle that I have to get through this whole interpretive question. 
Okay. Well, we are five minutes past the hour. I did let that go a little bit long because, you know, we had so many uh, just kind of housekeeping items at the start. But I think everybody who wanted to speak has had the opportunity to. At least uh, I don't think I missed anybody. If I did, I apologize. But I think we'll just time wise, we'll have to call it there. But Robert, did you have any thoughts before we finish up for the night? Um, no, like I said, just hold your stones for another week or two, then you can throw. Well, I will be back here next week and I hope all of you will be as well. It's good to see people returning from last season and it's good to see some new people joining in as well. So for the uh, people who have been around here for a while, thanks for keeping the project going for the people who are new. We hope to see you back next week and in the weeks going forward. And we'll be doing this at the same time every Friday night, nine Eastern. Again, if you miss uh, the, if you miss the the live discussion and you want to come back and listen to it later, there is uh, the audio is posted to uh, Robert's uh, written post every single week. And you can get that as a podcast uh, in a podcast format in all of your favorite podcasting apps. So that's all available on the website, Bible study page, uh, linked from the homepage. And you can contact Robert uh, through that page as well. There's a box to do that. And as always, if you have any questions or if I have not explained something adequately, go ahead and send me an email and I will be happy to help you out. But we look forward to this project uh, continuing and, uh, and that'll do it for this week. So Robert, thank you for your time and effort as always. And thanks everybody for joining. It was a pleasure.